Well, good morning again, uh, 59th Street family. We welcome those who are joining us a little bit later today as we continue our sermon series, The Story, uh, where we explore this grand narrative that God has literally been planning from the beginning of the universe until its very end. And today we're finally going to look at the beginning of the story. Um, if you remember, we've, we've been looking at the New Testament, then we looked a little bit at the Exodus events, and today we're finally going to be looking at the story of Genesis. But before we talk about Genesis, I actually want to do a throwback and talk a little bit about Star Wars, invoke my inner, my inner Pastor Andy here. And I want to talk a, bit, talk a little bit about something very controversial. And this con controversial subject is the proper Star Wars viewing order. How do you watch it? Now, earlier in this year, um, my cousin and I, she's never watched Star Wars. Um, so my cousin and I, we would meet up um, every one, you know, every month or every other month um, to watch Star Wars. And as we first started, she's, since she's never watched it, you know, we had to figure out like, well, how do we watch it? Do we watch it? you know, four, five, six, one, two, three, you know, in release order? Uh, do we watch it chronologically from one to six in order? And after much research, uh, we decided to do neither. Uh, there exists another order, and this order is actually called the machete order. Don't ask me why it's called machete order, you know. Um, but the idea behind the machete order is very simple. The idea starts off with, we watched four, episodes four and five, and this is where we're introduced to the main protagonist, Luke Skywalker, but we're also introduced to the main antagonist, which is Darth Vader. And at the end of episode five, right, that's where we get this, you know, shocking line, right, Luke, I am your father, and the audience, they're left suspended, right? They're wondering exactly who is this Darth Vader? Vader, right? There's all this tension, all this mystery that leads them to wonder who is this Vader. And so instead, instead of jumping straight into the resolution at chapter six, we answer that story. Who is this Darth Vader by going back to episode two and episode three, where we see the backstory of how Anakin Skywalker became Darth Vader, right? We, gain, we see that backstory, we gain a clearer understanding, and only after that, only after we gain a clearer understanding of Anakin, do we finally watch episode six, where we have that final resolution. Also, if you notice, we, we skip episode one because it's heretical, so there is no episode one. That does not exist. And we thought this was a very ingenious way to watch the series, right? Because it preserves the shock value of Darth Vader revealing his identity without hastily uh, moving to the end and uncovering who he is. Instead, we, we take some time to look back at all the stories, everything that happened in his life that made him, made this Jedi Knight, one of the most popular, uh, famous villains in pop culture. So now turning our eyes back to scripture for a moment. Last week, I made a very subtle point about the book of Genesis. And this is the subtle point. At this point in Israelite history, their first encounter with Yahweh, the creator God, their first encounter with him was not in the book of Genesis. Their first encounter with God was in Exodus during the whole Red Sea events where all the Israelites saw this God performing miracles of all kinds, splitting the sea, and the Israelites are wondering, who is this Yahweh? 
right? Just as the audience who watch episode five wonder who is this Darth Vader, the Israelites, after being saved by a relatively unknown God, must have wondered who exactly is this Yahweh character. And so to answer that question, Moses, through God's divine inspiration, writes down exactly who this Yahweh character is and all the events that transpired that led the Israelites to where they are now. And so I want you guys to, to practice a little bit of imagination for a moment. I want you to imagine you're the Israelites. Imagine you see all these crazy miracles with, with you know, the weather, you know, hailing all of a sudden, animals coming out of nowhere. Uh, being controlled, you see rivers split into two, and you're radically saved by this supposed God of Abraham, this supposed God of Isaac and Jacob, who neither you nor your family have known. And after being saved by this relatively unknown God, you, you run to Moses and ask Moses, who is this God? Who is this Yahweh you speak about? And this is what Moses tells you. He says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. <clears throat> And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the waters under the vault from the waters above it. And it was so. And God called the vault sky. And there was evening. There was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruits with seed in it according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruits with seed in it according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vaults of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vaults of the sky to give uh, light on earth. And it was so. God made two great lights. The greater light to govern the day and the lesser night to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vaults of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that that too was good. And there was morning, evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. That was the covenant that you so kindly read about. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with it, uh, with, sorry, with which the water teems that, and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in earth and fill the water in the seas and let their and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the grounds, and the wild animals according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the wild animals according to their kind, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make mankind in our image. In our likeness, 
so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and every other living creature that moves on the ground. So now through this passage and also in Genesis 2, which we actually won't read for the sake of time, the Israelites, they actually learn three things about who this Yahweh is, or actually about what this world is as well. They learn about God, they learn about creation, and they also learn about themselves. They learn about humanity. And so let's take a look at this piece by piece by examining our, our first sermon point here today, Yahweh Revealed. So who exactly is this Yahweh that saved the Israelites out of Egypt? And the Israelites learn that this God is, first of all, creator. And the Hebrew word for create is bara, uh, which is unique in that this word is actually never used for human beings. In Hebrew, human beings, they can make things, they can fashion things, but in Hebrew language, only God creates. And by stating that God created both heaven and earth, that's an ancient Near Eastern way of saying that God has literally created everything in this universe, everything from the spiritual to the physical, from the smallest atom to God's divine heavenly kingdom and everything in between. Everything that exists is created by this Yahweh. And what is so unique about this creation that it's completely effortless, right? God speaks and things just suddenly exist which is unheard of in other ancient Near Eastern religions, especially for the Egyptians, where they believed that the world and universe were only created through some sort of cosmic bloody war. But through this creative act, the Israelites also understood another thing about their God, and that God is also the supreme king over the entire universe. God demands every aspect of creation to do his will, whether that's for the sun to govern the day or the moon to govern the night or even to call the animals to be fruitful and to multiply. And interestingly, you know, if you just look forward in the New Testament, you see Jesus displaying the same type of, not power, but displaying the same type of authority when he controls the winds and the waves. Not because, you know, he has some sort of magic powers, but because all forces of nature must obey the authority and the will of God. And so when the Israelites saw God in Exodus, turning water into blood, sending all sorts of animals and diseases to even controlling the weather and even cosmic events such as eclipse, eclipses, it showed to the Israelites something very clear. It showed to the Israelites that although the Egyptians might have a God for each force of nature, they might have a God for the sun, a God of the fish, you know, a God of the streams, Yahweh is the one and only sovereign king over all of those forces. Everything from the sun down to the water molecule must obey the will of God, since God is not just creator, but God is king as well, and he has authority over that which he created. And when the Israelites understood this, they began to have a clearer and clearer understanding that even if, even if there are many gods or spiritual forces out there, there's actually only one king, and there's only one person 
who deserves the title of God, and that person is Yahweh. And this must be a very sobering realization for the Israelites, that there is actually no other person, no other thing, no force of nature that isn't ruled by God. This is entirely unheard of, during that time at least. And so through the Genesis narrative, the Israelites began to understand who this Yahweh is. But in Genesis, obviously, right, God is not the only thing in the story, but the universe and the objects in the universe are characters as well as God creates them and gives them identity. And so just as Yahweh is revealed through Genesis, creation is revealed as well. And so what are some things that creation reveals? And one thing that creation reveals is actually reflecting back at the creator. And one thing that creation reveals is God's universal concern. Uh, throughout history, there's, there's a reason, right, why we call them Egyptian gods or Babylonian gods or Greek and Roman gods. And from a modern perspective, we would say, yeah, of course, that makes sense, right? After all, Osiris and Ra were the gods that were worshipped by the Egyptians. However, this actually misses the point. In ancient Near Eastern thoughts, there were many gods, and each nation, each nation had its own little tribal god. There were the Egyptian gods, not because they were gods worshipped in Egypt, but more specifically, this was the god who ruled over Egypt. Or for the Babylonian gods, they're not called Babylonian gods because they're worshipped by the Babylonians. Rather, this god controls or rules over the Babylonians. And so each group of people believed that there was a, a specific group of gods who were their own personal rulers who would protect them, their own little divine king. But the story of creation turns that story upside down. As the Israelites leave Egypt, it probably wouldn't be too far-fetched for the Israelites to believe that Yahweh was their own little tribal god, only focused, whose influence and powers only extend to the people of Israel and their little slice of land right by the Mediterranean Sea. But the story of Genesis becomes a very humbling story for these Israelites. The people are humbled, first of all, because Yahweh is much greater than they think. And that Yahweh is actually not just their king of, of this small slice of land, of this people called the Israelites. No, Yahweh is actually indeed the king of the entire creation. But the people are also humbled because even though they are considered God's chosen people, they understand that God's concern actually extends beyond them. God is not only concerned about the Israelites. Because God created all, God is actually concerned about the entirety, the entirety of creation and all humans who live in it. The Egyptians, the Chinese, everyone under the sun had one true king. That true king was not Ra, was not Thor, it was Yahweh. And so when creation and humanity fall into sin, which we'll talk about next week, we see that God's salvation does not extend just to the borders of Israel. Rather, it extends to all cultures, to all nations, to all people. But more so than that, salvation also extends even to creation itself, even to this world around us, where there will be a total end of violent forces of nature, diseases, drought, and famine. All of that will end as well 
the world, the universe itself, will be saved, not just humans. And so along with creation revealing God's universal concern, we also learn from the narrative, from the Genesis narrative, that creation is also something that is good. In fact, uh, it is very good. And it's actually something that is entirely meant for us to enjoy. It is good that we enjoy the beauty of God's creation. It is good that we enjoy the comforts of good food. It is good that we enjoy the company of pets and animals. The creation of God isn't something we're supposed to avoid. It's not something we're supposed to feel guilty about enjoying. We don't get closer to God by rejecting the material world, right? After all, isn't this world a simply a reflection of the creator himself? And so perhaps if this world is a reflection of our creator, if we want to learn, if we want to get closer to our creator, perhaps we should spend more time in that which he has created instead of avoiding it as if it's something that is evil or something that is not meant to be enjoyed. After all, this is God's good creation. However, because there is a creator and a created, there's a distinction between the two, right? Creation itself is not God, right? There's actually a hierarchy in authority. The world that God created is, in fact, not equal to God, nor is creation a God in itself. Creation is, in fact, subservience to God's purposes in every way, if indeed God is the one and only king. All creation must follow the purpose of God. And since we, as humans, are parts of God's creation, we too must follow the purposes of God. And through this, the purpose of humanity is also revealed. One of the purposes of humanity that is pretty clear in our passage is related to the truth that we are made or we are created in God's image. Just as God is the ruler of the entire universe, we who are made in his image are given the task to rule as well. Not the universe, however, but to rule over the planets in which we live in. And this is a surprising reality for the slaves who are leaving out of Egypt because most, if not all, ancient Near Eastern religions taught that hum humans were actually slaves to gods. We are in other religions at that time. They believed that we were only made here on earth to do the dirty work that the gods were too lazy to do. I'm not lying. That's actually true. And so if the ancient Near Eastern gods were that way, even if people were released from slavery by other humans, they still saw themselves fundamentally as slaves to their own gods. But the Genesis narrative tells us a different reality about humanity. In the Genesis narrative, we are told that just as God is ruler, he gives us the privilege to not be slaves instead, but to rule alongside him as co-rulers. In fact, the phrase image of God was a title given only to kings. It wasn't given to normal people. It definitely was not given to slaves. And if we think about Genesis 2 for a moment, we actually see a glimpse of how humans co-rule with Christ, or not, not with Christ, but with God, and that just as God in Genesis 1 names things and gives identity to the world, to the universe around him, God also invites Adam, the first man, to name animals, to give identity and to purpose to the world around him as well. 
And so, as the Israelites, as they left Egypt and as they left their shackles behind, rather than finding themselves back in shackles with some foreign god, they're shown the truth that they are actually co-rulers with Yahweh. That both humanity and God work alongside each other to bring life into the world around them. And this life includes not just plants and animals, but we're also called to bring well-being and life to our fellow brothers and sisters here as well, to work and to serve in a way that enriches the lives of others, to work in a way that promotes justice, that promotes love, and that promotes peace at every level. And so, when we look at Genesis from this perspective of the Israelites leaving Egypt and asking, you know, who is this Yahweh? We actually see and we read the story from an entirely different per- perspective. If we were the Israelites who were freed, we see that God, the God who saved us is not just another God out there, but indeed He's actually the one and only true King who has created all and who rules over all aspects of creation. We see that creation also reveals that God is concerned not just about us, but about the world that we live in. And we also learn that. This world is something that He created for us to delight in as well. But through the Genesis narrative, we also gain a new identity. We who were once slaves, whether to gods or whether to other kings, we're now given a new identity, where we are given the position of kings as well, rulers in this world. We who toiled and worked for an oppressive king find ourselves liberated. Not to be a servant, but to rule alongside the one true King in heaven. And through this story, through this narrative that we just read, we see that the stage is now finally set. The Israelites understood the purpose of God as King. They understood creation as a place of joy, and they finally understand the purpose of humanity as well to promote life and growth in the world around them and within the society that they live in. So now that the stage is finally set, in the coming weeks we're going to explore how things just fall so short of God's glory, and that humanity, who's supposed to serve alongside God, has actually taken up a position where they serve against their God, where they serve against their one true King. That's something we'll explore in the coming weeks. But why don't we take some time and、um, come together in prayer? Heavenly Father, we we confess that you are indeed、uh, the one true King. There is no one like you in this universe, and there is no one who can match you.、Um, effortless, effortlessly, you created this universe, and effortlessly you sustain this universe. From nothingness, you created life, and within this creation, you have made us in your image as co-rulers, not as slaves. We recognize that we're not here just to serve you, but to also serve alongside you. That as you bring life into this world, we are also encouraged to do the same. And so, throughout this week, I, I pray that you'll open our eyes to how we can serve alongside you. I pray for our eyes to be open to instances of grief, pain, or or even death, and how we can serve alongside you to bring life in even the bleakest of situations. We're here to enjoy this world. Uh, but we recognize that we're also here to tend this world, to rule over it, to rule over this world that you have lovingly created. 
And so give us the strength to do so. Uh, let our hearts be moved to recognize that though we may be considered as a sheep to be slaughtered, we are indeed more than conquerors through him who loved us. Indeed, we are rulers. And we pray all of this in your precious son's name. Amen.